And with that now, I'd like to get into my message today. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what area or hobby or interest that you have. Every area has its sacred places, its sacred spaces. So if you're into golf, your sacred place probably is Augusta National. If you're into uh, NASCAR, your sacred place probably is Daytona. Uh, if you're into motorcycles, your sacred place probably is Sturgis, South Dakota. These are the places that whatever you're into, when you get to be there, you get to be around it, it's, it's the goosebump factor, right? You're like, wow, I've always dreamed of this. This is going to be so wonderful. Maybe you're thinking about, for you, whatever that thing would be. Well, for all of us, as we come to Romans 6, 7, and 8... If you are a Christian, this is sacred place. This is arguably the greatest three chapters in all of the Bible, with chapter 8 probably being the number one chapter in all of the Bible. I told you that as we began Romans, I've waited many years to preach Romans, and in some ways, I've waited these years to simply preach Romans 6, 7, and 8. Uh, I come to it, I, I come to it reverent, I come to it excited, I come to it also in discovery mode. Like, it's not like I got all of these chapters figured out. I'm looking, I'm excited because I get to study them in depth and then share them with you. And I just know that uh, it doesn't get any better than these three chapters. I told you when we started Romans, I said, if, if all the series I ever do in my entire life, if I could pick one to be the best one that I ever preach, I want it to be this one. And if there's a section in Romans that I want to be the best of all the chapters that I ever preach in my entire life, it is chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. And so I ask you to pray for me. I want it to be awesome. I'm raising the bar of expectation. Please don't put it too high, okay? So I will do the very best that I can to do justice to what is so absolutely precious and wonderful, it is a privilege to come to them. What makes it so special? What makes these chapters so fantastic? They, better than anywhere in all of the Bible, they explain the gospel, and not just the gospel, but the gospel byproducts, the gospel by blessings, the things that flow from all that God has done for us in Jesus, and these include things like the amazing love of God, our adoption into God's family, our victory over sin in Christ, our new life in the Holy Spirit, and the future glory that is awaiting us, which God's love will never leave us, and we are most assuredly heading towards that future glory. All of these are found in these three chapters. Now, the they're taught in other places of the Bible for sure, but there is no place where they are so uh, taught in such depth, taught in such, uh, they're condensed, they're all in one place. It's going to be great. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. So, I want to pass that excitement on to you as we come to this and to understand, really, the gospel in all of its depth. And to that end... Here we are, we just finished chapter five. It's kind of a moment to kind of go, okay, what have we been learning? And I want to do a review of Romans one through five so that we understand how it connects to Romans six. 
So let's go all the way back to Romans 1. What do we see in Romans 1? Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And we, we see in that that the gospel is a gospel of salvation. And we ask the question, salvation from what? Like we said, if you ask somebody in the street, hey, are you saved? They would say, saved from what? Well, Paul doesn't give any time to answer that question. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Who are we saved from? What are we saved from? We are saved from God. We are saved from God's eternal wrath. Ironically, this is the mystery of the gospel. We are saved from God by God. That's his grace. With me today? Okay, all right. You know what this means, Bethel Church? It means you go, yes, I'm with you, Pastor Steve. And we see in chapter one, he explains why are we under the wrath of God? And he says that we were created by God. We were created to worship him. But what happens? Mankind denies that worship and decides to worship created things, to worship material things. And all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the brokenness that flows into this world and into our lives because of sin. And he highlights in chapter one one particular category that exceptionally shows our brokenness, which is our sexuality and our sexual identity. That and so many other things reveal that this world is fundamentally flawed. It is broken. We get to the end of chapter one. The point is, all the Gentiles are going to hell. Chapter two, you might think, well, hey, not God's people, right? If you're a Jew, you're un- you must be okay because you got the law of God. You're a descendant of Abraham. And he says, oh, wait a second, Jews, don't, don't think that. Just because you have the law, you're not fulfilling it. You're not obeying it. So in the end, you're just like the Gentiles. So you get to the end of chapter two, the Gentiles are going to hell in chapter one, the Jews are going to hell in chapter two. So bad is sin and so pervasive is sin in the world that he says in chapter three, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So you get to chapter 3, verse 20, and if Romans ended there, I mean, we just all would, you know, we're all lining up for counseling. We're all lining up for something, (laughs) drugs, whatever, to take this pain away. There's no good news in the world. We're all lost. There's no righteousness to be had. There's no way to be reconciled with God. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 21. I mean, if chapter 3, if chapter, uh, verse 20 couldn't end any worse, verse 21 couldn't begin any better. What does he say there? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And those glorious words were now, wait, there's a way that I can be made right with God? To have right standing with God? That I am not fulfilling because of my own moral merits? That's indeed what it says. It comes apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to explain how this happens in terms of justification. A legal term where God declares us to be righteous. Are we righteous? I wondered if you were with me, and now I know. You're not. You're not with me. Are we righteous? 
No, we're not righteous. And yet God declares us to be righteous. How can he do that without himself being unrighteous? Which now ties into the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As he fulfills righteousness, dies on the cross in our place. And how does that righteousness come to us? By faith. I gain all the benefits of Christ's work on the cross. I gain right standing before God. I am declared righteous now and forever. God promises to treat me as if I'm as righteous as Jesus for all of eternity. What's better than that? The miracle of justification. And just in case you thought everybody else needs that, but I don't, in chapter four he says, well, let's talk about Abraham. And why is Abraham important? Because if there's anybody in the Old Testament that's saved, it's Abraham. And yet, what does he prove? That Abraham had to be justified by faith. That even Abraham had to do that. And the point is this, you're no Abraham. I don't care how good you are, how famous you are, who you think you are, you're not Abraham. And if Abraham needed to be saved by faith, then you, my friend, desperately need it, even more than him. Abraham was saved by faith as God declared him righteous as well. And then we saw in chapter five, he steps away from Abraham, he gets talking about Adam and how when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. This once for all, all for one principle. That when Adam sinned, we, we sinned with him and we inherited guilt from him. We inherited that moral failure from him so that now by nature and by choice, we also sin and we are guilty before God. Which God now uses the same principle of representation to allow Christ to represent all of us. Adam represented all of us by taking us to hell. Christ can now die on the cross representing all of us and bring us all to heaven. And that there is now a new Adam, there is a new representative. And the question is, are you tied to him? Are you tethered to him? And all of this is by God's grace that when we sin, when mankind is sins, God's grace superabounds over all of our sin. That his grace is higher, it's deeper, it's stronger, it's greater than all of our sins could ever be. And so we get to the end of chapter five and we see that our verdict is that we are sinners, but our vindication is by God's grace. Where sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. So that's chapters one through five in review. Now, if you're tracking with this, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, so what you're saying, Paul, is that when I sin, God's grace enlarges over my sin, and that God is glorified by his grace over my sin. Yes, that's what he's saying. So. Wouldn't it stand to reason then that if when I sin, God is glorified, that I should sin a lot? And some of you are thinking, I'm really liking where this sermon's going. <laughs> this could be my all-time favorite sermon. And he's just getting going in Romans 6, 7, and 8. But think about this with me. 
If I love God and I want him to be glorified, and if God is glorified when I sin by his grace expanding and covering it, then am I not doing God a favor by sinning a lot? And shouldn't my perspective on this be that I am not only going to sin in small ways and in secret ways, I want God's grace to be glorified publicly. And for that to happen, I have to sin publicly. Should we not all go out and sin epically, magnificently? Let's just go sin to the glory of God. Well, this is the very criticism that Paul was hearing as he went into synagogues and tried to explain salvation not by the law, but salvation by grace. His critics would hear him and say, wait a second, you're saying that the way that we live doesn't matter? Well, then why don't we just go live any way that we jolly well want to if we're saved by grace? And you can imagine him in a, in a, in a Gentile context where they don't necessarily know the law, but they probably know a lot about you know, immoral behavior, and, God, and Paul's saying, hey, that immoral behavior, God can forgive even that. His grace is greater than all of that immoral behavior at the pagan temples and the prostitutes and all the things that you've been a part of. God's grace is bigger than all of those sins. And they hear the message and they say to themselves, well, if God's grace is bigger than all of those sins, I'm gonna keep doing them, because I like them. And so there were people that were criticizing him, and there were people that were misapplying what he was saying. So that is why he gets to the end of chapter 5, explaining the grace of God and the superabounding nature of the grace of God, and he anticipates now this question. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. May God bless his word as we seek to understand it now. And what we see here is that with these verses, what Paul is doing, this is a transition. Chapter five to chapter six is a transition where in the first five chapters, he's explaining how God declares us righteous. In six, seven, and eight, he explains how God makes us righteous. The difference between what is known as justification and sanctification who we are in Christ, and how we live in Christ. And should there make any difference being justified in the way that I live? And as we come to this, we can hardly overstate how many problems and pain and controversies down through church history have flowed from this question of what difference does justification make in the way that you live? Or should it? Many of the most volatile controversies in church history have something to do with this relationship between justification and sanctification, between law and grace. And this explains, for example, much of the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics 
and gives rise to teachings like perfectionism, antinomianism, legalism, and a host of other isms that we could talk about as people have fractured and fought and really lived out poorly the grace of God. And this is not just an ethereal story, by the way. This is very personal to me. Because I grew up in a branch of Christianity that tried to solve the lifestyle issue not by understanding grace, but by emphasizing law. And, and I'm thankful for many of the things that I, that I grew up with, with and, and all of that. I'm not throwing all of it out. But in this respect, there was massive confusion and, in my opinion, misabuse of the grace of God and the law of God. Where the attempt was, especially for these young people who have all kinds of sinful desires, to curb those sinful desires, not by emphasizing grace, but by adding rules, man-made laws, and emphasizing them as if they're as important as the virgin birth itself. And now maybe some of you are saying, hey, wait, that actually sounds a little bit like my story. Because I know there are many people in our church who can relate to my own story with this. That salvation was by grace, but then after that, everything was human performance. That you got saved by grace, but you stay saved by working hard at it. And all of this left such confusion, especially amongst the young people of the church. Because it was hard to sort through all of the things that we were being told with what was actually like biblical and gospel and what was man-made. And the fruit of that is that many of the people that I grew up with in church, I went to a Christian school, many of the years of my education was at a Christian school, that many, many of them today are not going to a church. And if you said, hey, you should go to church, they would laugh and scorn at the thought of it, probably give you a profanity. They don't like the church. They have bitterness about what it was like growing up in churches like this. And I could give you many names, friends of mine. And if you ask them to this day, why are you so bitter at the church? You would not hear any of them say, oh, all that talk about grace. All the grace on display in the church. It was grace, grace, grace. I just couldn't handle it anymore. I had to get out of there. All that talk about grace. None of them would say that. They would say, I hated all the hypocrisy. I had one friend that came from this kind of background, and he said, you know the biggest damage it did in my life? He said, I got used, I, I got used to violating my conscience, which is interesting for him to say. And so many stories, so much pain, because of a confusion about the role of grace and the role of law. I'm convinced that many of the people that have given up on Christianity have not given up on the real thing. They have given up on, on a distorted version of Christianity. Legalism is not authentic Christianity. 
Legalism is not a version of Christianity. It is a perversion of Christianity. And so many people that, that, that speak negatively about Christianity, they're, they're speaking negatively about their experience in something much less than authentic Christianity. Because once you understand what real Christianity is, especially if you come from a background like mine, all of a sudden it looks really, really good. Why? Because there's a lot of grace in real Christianity. And who doesn't need grace? So that's my story. And there's a lot more to it. But I know, I've been around a long time, we got a lot of people here in this church who can relate to my story. And if you're still in the church, I'm going to guess it's because somehow along the way you realize that what you grew up in was a, a Picasso version of Christianity, all distorted and twisted and sort of weird. And you recognize that that's not the real thing. And somehow God drew you to a more grace-based understanding of the gospel. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, I can't relate to that. Like, I hear people that talk like that, and I can't relate to that. You know, I, I came from a different background or whatever. That's fine. But I'll bet all of us, here's another distortion. I'll bet all of us know people who say, I'm a Christian. And you go, you're a Christian? He goes, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. How can you be a Christian? I know you. I know your lifestyle. How can you be a Christian? They say, hey, man, I went forward at this thing, and I filled out this form and this card. I got it still in a file somewhere at home, and it said that I am saved, and I'm going to heaven. Or maybe somebody said to them, always, or once saved, always saved. Which is interpreted then to be what? Free pass. I can do anything I want to. I can live any way that I want to. I'm going to heaven. Why? Because once saved, always saved. You believe that, don't you, brother? Yes, but not the way that you're saying it exactly. There are so many people that would claim to be Christians but somehow view it as cover for a basic lifestyle of carnality and immorality. And you try to suggest to them that this isn't actually not what God's will is, and they're like, who are you to tell me what's right? I, I mean, I trust in Jesus. I'm good. They basically view God, the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card. And they got it in their back pocket, and when they show up at the pearly gates, they're going to give it to Peter. So these and many other distortions reveal how critical the question is that he begins chapter 6 with. <laughs> is grace somehow cover for a lifestyle of sin? Can you actually be under the grace of God if you are viewing it as license to live for the very things that Jesus died for? Paul, what say ye? And what we find then as we come into chapter 6 is, yes, it's an inc incredible encouragements in this chapter, 
But it is in, these are incredible chapters, not because they're just like a psalm of some kind, which we love the psalms, but because they grapple with the things that make the gospel so very precious. And so it's going to be wonderful. So with that, let's get into it and figure out what is he saying here in this first verse, right? So let me read it again. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So here we have, what? Four sentences and three of them are questions. This is what I think Paul is asking fundamentally is this. Is salvation by grace from sin permission to sin? Is salvation by grace from sin permission to sin? And again, Paul's not making this up. Like, you know, in an ethereal sort of way, maybe somebody might wonder. There is no doubt this is what he was getting from people. As he tried to explain to them the gospel, he was getting them saying, people were saying to him, so we can just live however we want to then. Is that what you're saying? Because we're saved by grace? Our lifestyle doesn't matter? Well, there is a word that is used to describe people that would take this position. And... This is a fancy Nancy word. Now, we read fancy Nancy books to our girls. Maybe you don't know what fancy Nancy books are, but it's a little girl who's learning big words. And most of them are French words, by the way. And so when she learns a new word, it's a fancy Nancy word. And I have a fancy Nancy theological word for you that I would like to get very comfortable with saying I'd like to use it freely and not have to explain it all the time and to do so until... You know, I'm no longer pastoring here. So let's just get this into the Bethel Church vernacular. Here is the word describing people who take this position, and it's the word antinomian, okay? Antinomian. And it's, it's not that hard to understand because you just break it down and you see the word there, anti, right? We all know that's like no, negative. And then nomos is the Greek word for law. So an antinomian would be somebody, this is a broad brush, somebody who says no law. Or more specifically, that the law of God, the moral commands of God, have no relevance to the Christian's life. Why? Because we're saved by grace. Okay? We're saved by grace. Now, nobody, nobody thinks they're an antinomian. You could be an antinomian here, just a, a, a straight-up antinomian, and if I asked you today, you'd say, I'm not an antinomian. Nobody's going to introduce themselves Hi, I'm Bob, I'm an antinomian, okay? Nobody thinks that they are an antinomian. And they use all the right words. This is the danger of it, right? Because they use words, use words that we like, like faith and grace and forgiveness. These are all words Christians love these words. You can stand next to an antinomian. He's gonna sing with gusto, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. They love the song, Amazing Grace. Indeed, the grace of God is so amazing that my obedience, the direction of my life morally and spiritually is completely irrelevant because I am saved by grace. And the issue that we have here now is whether or not obedience or the fancy Nancy word sanctification whether that is a necessary byproduct of genuine justification or not. 
Does justification change anything in us? Must it? That's the issue. Now, if you've been here for very long, you might remember a few years ago, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. And we talked about what is the role of the law of God. And we, we had the three M's that summarized it. That the law of God is a muzzle, it's a mirror, and it's a map. I don't know if you remember that, but I'm going to hearken back to that old series. How is the law of God a muzzle? It restrains men and women from living as sinfully as we otherwise would. It's, it's a muzzle. It restrains society. We have a conscience. It keeps us from acting out our sinfulness in ways that we otherwise would. Why? Because we know it's wrong. It's a muzzle. The law of God is also a mirror. We hold up the law of God, and it shows us, we had this illustration last week, it shows us our moral imperfections, like that vanity mirror that women look at and they see with clarity, greater clarity in the, in the mirror, the, the, the blemishes and the imperfections like that, the law of God shows us with clarity our moral imperfections. It's a key role that it has. The third is that it's a map, okay? It's a map. It is guidance for us in the way that we should live to please God. We see in the law of God the will of God. And we know how God would ha want us to live morally and spiritually. And it is the third role, the map, that is the battleground in the antinomian debate and the role of the law and the role of grace in our lives. Now, I think Paul couldn't say it any clearer, his personal feelings on the matter. Okay, how does he respond to the question? Okay, what does he say? By no means. By no means, megenetoi. There's the fancy Nancy Greek word for that little phrase. And I remember that phrase because I remember in seminary, professors, when, they, when we get to this little phrase, Paul uses it 14 times, so you get to it occasionally, they would always, they would always like, you know, be amazed that Paul would use such strong language. It is literally the strongest negative language the Greek language allows for. So the English here, this translation says, by no means. If you want to get more at what he's saying here, he is saying this, never, never, never. Did you get that? You don't have to go to seminary, right? <laughs> Think of just the strongest possible emphasis and like he's just deplored at the thought of it. Never, may it never be. Paul wants to make it clear that grace is not permission to sin. And he follows it with this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a rhetorical question. The we here is Christians. We died to sin. Okay, there's something interesting. How exactly did we die to sin? And as I say that we died to sin, are you getting a little nervous, Christian? Because what are you maybe thinking about this week that you did? You sinned. It's hard to get an amen at the second service here. It's just hard, so hard to get an amen. Do we all sin? Are we, is it safe to say that convention of sinners here, Bethel Church, that's all we are is a bunch of sinners here? So the pastor says we all sin, stone quiet. Nobody wants to acknowledge it. You know what? I didn't have to live the week with you. You sinned this week. So did I. 
I'll assume you're amening the first part of that sentence. <laughs> now, my wife Jennifer could amen the second part <laughs> as she is here with us. But we all sinned this week. And yet, Romans says we died to sin. So how can I have died to sin and still be practicing sin? Am I not under the grace of God? And you see how now this gets a little complex, doesn't it? What does all of this mean? Well, here's what this little part means. That we died to our sin when Jesus died for our sin. Okay? Want to write something down? That's a good one. We died to our sin when Jesus died for our sin. Now think with me, brothers, here. And these chapters are going to require, you know, uh, past post-kindergarten Sunday school type thinking, okay? And here we're on a point that requires that. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died as our substitute for our sin, okay? What exactly did he die for? What does that mean? He died for our moral guilt before a holy God. He died for all the sins that we would ever do. He died in our place, and all of this relates to sin. What is sin? Our moral and spiritual failure to live up to the glory of God. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is a lawlessness against God. Sin is a force and is alive and well in all of us. It is our nature. We have a sinful nature. And most Christians right now would be saying, yes, amen, I get it, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, he did. But what many people don't realize, and is one of the keys to unlocking this chapter, is that when Jesus died for our sins, we died with him to our sins. We died to sin as our master. We died to sin as the, as the overarching center of our life, the direction of our life. We died to it being our king. And now the question makes sense. How can we who died to king sin go on living with king sin as our, as our king? How, how, can I have, how can I have sin as the master of my life? How can I have sin as the overarching purpose of my life when Jesus died for our sins? It is to understand that in that moment when he died, we died with him. And we died to our sin. We died to sin as our master and our king. John Stott, it is not literally the impossibility of sin in believers, which Paul is declaring, but the moral incongruity of it. And that's why it's rhetorical. How can, how can we continue to live in sin when we die to sin? Let me illustrate it this way. I get this question oftentimes. If you know my story, you know that I got married later in life. Okay, I was in my 40s. And, you know, back in my single days, I, I was, this was kind of what I was known. I was the bachelor pastor. If you went to Bethel, oh, you're going to go hear that bachelor pastor. Like, why would you listen to a bachelor pastor? He doesn't know anything. And I didn't. I, I don't know why you came. 
But I would get asked when I was in my single days, what's it like to be a single pastor? And I would say, I, I, don't know, I don't know what it's like to be a married pastor. It's all that I've ever known. Well, now that I'm married, you know the question that I get? So, what's it like being married? Have, uh, have a few things changed in your life? And indeed, they have. But I get asked that a lot. And let's just say that when I get asked that question, my response is, well, actually, nothing's really changed. I sleep when I want, I get up when I want, I golf when I want, I'm away from home whenever I want, I spend my money any way that I want, I spend my time any way that I want, I watch my TV anytime I want, and I watch the shows that I want when I watch my television. Nothing's really changed. You could say, Pastor Steve, did you really get married? Because <laughs> I was at the wedding, and I heard you make those vows. Like, I thought you actually got married. Did you... Did you pretend to get married if nothing has changed? And that's just uniting with a woman in marriage. And yet all this expectation of change, that that experience would be so dramatic in getting married that things would change in your life. What happens when a sinner unites with the Son of God in a spiritual fellowship. What happens to who's in charge? What happens to the direction of your life when Jesus is your king? Does anything change? Should we expect anything to change or not? Paul's response Never, never, never. In other words, we died to sin. How can I live with it as my master and king now that I am united to the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And the reason for this is something we're actually going to get into next time. But I'm going to illustrate the point now. And you might remember a few weeks ago, I was talking about the doctrine of federal headship. Now, you don't need to remember that term. But you might remember I had some ropes that were hanging down from the ceiling, climbing ropes. And I explained how when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. When he fell off Mount Righteousness, because we were tethered to him as fellow human beings, we all fell down with him. Do you remember that? Nod your head, second service. You've been terribly disappointing, but redeem yourself. <laughs> redeem yourself here at the end. And then I said, but God takes the same principle, and I had a second rope, and it's the Jesus rope, and I said, when we unite by faith with Jesus, when we carabiner in with Jesus, that we are also uniting with him and his work, 
And Adam took us down, Jesus lifts us up. Adam took us to hell, Jesus takes us to heaven. And my question was, which rope are you tethered to? Okay, which rope are you tethered to? Now, taking that very same principle, how does being tethered to Jesus save us? What does that mean? And here now I have this cross here. And this is gonna be the point of the next passage. That when I said that we are united with Christ, which was, in that illustration, just a rope attached to the ceiling, in reality, what we are doing when we unite with Christ is we are uniting, this is faith now, I am by faith, tethering, carabiner, carabiner, is that a word? I don't know. I am tethered to Jesus, and specifically, I am tethered to all that he did. So that when he died for sin, I died towards sin in him. When he was resurrected, I was resurrected with him. That that faith that tethers me is known as, and this is the doctrinal statement right here, put it up if you would, union with Christ. I think it's the most misunderstood and missed doctrine of all. And it's so fantastic. It's the basis of all of chapter six. To understand what it means to be in union with Christ, by faith, yes, grace, but to be in union with what Jesus did might change your life. And that's next time. I hope you'll be here. Romans six, seven, and eight. It's gonna be fantastic. Amen. Amen.